0: Well, our title, as, uh, as Levi mentioned there, is Revitalization and Renewal in Smaller Communities. Uh, that's a bit of a mouthful, and uh, so maybe let me explain that title a little bit. Uh, the smaller communities piece. Uh, one of the things that you hear all the time in Canada, and you we've been hearing it since 2011 when the stat was introduced by StatsCan uh, in the StatsCan survey analysis, was that 80% of Canadians live in urban areas. Uh, it's extraordinarily common to, to hear that Canada is a highly urbanized country. And that has contributed to, I would say, an imbalance in the way we form strategies uh, for doing church. And I probably don't have to convince you of that if you're here in this workshop, uh, particularly in our little community. You know, we, we're kind of a, an island within the, the now many floating islands of evangelicalism. We sometimes say that evangelicalism, you know, 40 years ago was like a continent, that 20 years ago was hit by a nuclear bomb, and now it's a thousand islands floating in different directions. And and sort of the TGC flag has been planted on one of those islands, call it whatever you want, you know, a small, reformed, evangelical, robust, Bible-believing, sovereignty of God-enjoying group of people. Uh, and on that little island, uh, urban ministry is is all the rage. and And... Nothing wrong with that. I'm really thankful for people like Tim Keller who are coming up with neat ways to reach cities like New York. I'm really thankful for Dwayne Klein. Dwayne Klein's a friend of mine. I'm preaching at his church on Sunday. And I'm thankful for all the neat ways that that he's thinking through how to do church in urban areas. But when you dig a little deeper into the stats can statistics, you discover that actually 80% of Canadians don't live in places like that. Uh, In fact, StatsCan considers any community with over a 1,000 people in it to be an urban area. Now, to to put that in perspective, okay, StatsCan considered everything between the 401 and Lake Simcoe. So if you can think of the 400 highway there, everything between the 401 and Lake Simcoe as an urban area. Okay, well, I grew up in Kettleby, Ontario. Now, nobody here probably even knows where that is. Quick show of hands. You live in Kettleby, Ontario? Oh, I was going to say, what's your name? wow, okay, I feel like we should be friends because there's like 11 people in Kettleby, Ontario. <laughs> Kettleby, Kettleby, Ontario is essentially a crossroads with a general store where you can probably still rent VHS videos, uh, and uh, you can mail letters, and that's what Kettleby is. It has a united church. There's, there's a united church and a post office that does not a city make. And, uh, but, but Kettleby, Ontario, according to StatsCan, is an urban area. So when you dig a little deeper and you start looking at what I think any reasonable person would consider a city, you discover that actually 14 million Canadians live in what we would think of as major cities. If you broaden that definition out to include places like Kitchener, then it becomes about 50% of the Canadian population. So somewhere between 40 and 50% of Canadians live in actual urban areas. The rest of us live in smaller communities. Which, which means uh, we may be a little ahead of the curve in terms of tailoring all of our church strategy to urban areas. I think it would be safe to say that still in Canada, the majority of people do not live in cities, right? They're not buying coffee at Starbucks. They're not fighting rush hour traffic. Uh, they're, they're living in smaller communities. And, and so all, all I'm trying to do, and all this workshop is trying to do, is uh, address a little bit of that imbalance and to speak a little more specifically about how to pursue renewal in certain types of of communities. Let me also explain what I mean by revitalization and renewal. Um, Revitalization and renewal is also a bit of an odd thing to be talking about in in our little slice of evangelicalism. Most of you will know that in in our little slice of the world where TGC and, and those sorts of folks plant their flag, church planting is all the rage. And, and, and so the coolest thing to be in our world is a church planter in an urban setting. Uh, so why in the world are you here, uh, right? This is a conversation about renewal in smaller communities, which is just another way of saying this is the least cool room in the building. Uh, so welcome. Uh, we're glad you're here. But it's also a way of saying, uh, again, I, I think we may have overemphasized that particular aspect of ministry. I'm very thankful for people who are doing church planting. Our church is planted, uh, and actually our church has planted several churches over our history. Uh, our most recent plant, uh, actually, uh, Levi is uh, one of the, the folks on staff at, at that plant. We're super excited about planting. We hope to plant again, but my point is that's not all there is to do in, in ministry. That's not the only way that people get saved. It's not the only way the kingdom goes forth. And in fact, in many smaller communities, Given how hard it is to get land rezoned for institutional use, it is often far wiser and far more efficient to focus on renewal and revitalization. So, again, this workshop is somewhat targeted at that. Uh, let, let me also just take one minute and um, share some hesitation I have in, in doing this. Uh, I, I turned down the invitation to do this seminar. They wanted somebody to, I didn't choose this title. Um, they wanted somebody to speak on this and they asked me twice and twice I said no for the simple reason that it makes me very nervous uh, to speak about what God has done um, as, as, as though that can be reproduced somewhere else. Um, you know, here, one of the things that I've learned in, in ministry is that sometimes God works through us, but sometimes God works despite us. And, and so simply sitting down and saying, you know, hey, there was a stretch of time where God was really blessing us, and here's what we were doing, is a risky proposition, right? Because you, you know, those are not always logically related, right? Like, like if you got eaten by a lion the day after you ate pizza, it would be wrong for you to say eating pizza increases your chances of being eaten by a lion. Those are, in all likelihood, not related events. And so I have a hesitation to say, here are the five or six things we were doing while God blessed us, and then offering that to you as though there's your magic formula. So please don't hear this as a magic formula. And I would say, listen with a lot of discernment and prayer. I may just be describing what we were doing wrong while God in his mercy blessed us. Uh, and, And that may not be helpful. On the other hand, I'm also aware that false humility does as much damage to the church or probably almost as much as as arrogant bravado and and so the, on the third go around i said if this if 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 you think this could be helpful we'll share what, what we think we've observed about how god uh blessed us god is sovereign god is gracious god does what he does but it is also true that generally speaking god and his sovereignty makes use of ordinary and reasonable means and and so uh that's what this is. This is us sharing what, what we think, humanly speaking, was used by God in particular ways. Let me let me tell you a little bit about our story. Our church was founded in 1874, which is, means it's an older church. Uh, so we're not, you know, again, this is not the sexiest uh, part of, of the evangelical community. We're not talking about, you know, churches that are 11 minutes old and, and breaking all boundaries and everyone's got skinny jeans. We're talking about a really old church with you know parts of the building that smell funny, and right so and and lots of tradition and baggage and good stories and weird stories. So that that's who we are. Uh, our original name was a really, a really irregular Baptist church. I will tell you this, and I don't know what the significance of this is, but our church has a really long history of fairly robust theology, um, and. And that's a bit of an oddity in our particular denomination, I think I can say that. Uh, But there have been an awful lot of people who cared an awful lot about a very particular and well-articulated view of God and the gospel. And so I think there's some heavy ballast in in our church as well that obviously comes way before me. Uh, Our church moved into a new and bigger building in the mid-'80s. So in the in the mid '80s, we picked a spot at kind of the the center of town, and actually the center of where town is growing. So it's an ideal place. Built a nice building. Uh, it, it was built with lots of room to grow. However, uh, as the folks from that era will tell me, the growth never really materialized. In fact, long-term members and board members who we still have some guys on our board who were um, in leadership then will tell you the church began to decline basically as soon as they moved into the building. Uh, so the old, if you build it, they will come uh, thing didn't didn't prove true in our time. So by the time that I arrived as pastor, the church had been in slow, steady decline for about 20 years. There was a, a really, um, a man, of a great man of God, actually his, his uh, children still go to our church, which is kind of neat. Um, but there was a, a great man of God who was used to really grow the church in the 70s. That created the space constrictions. They launched in the 80's into this big new building, but, but he was gone and and, and kind of there's been this this pretty slow steady sag. And so there was about 20 years of slow steady sag and and I want to be very clear, I'm not saying until I got there and turned it around. I actually managed to contribute to that SAG in pretty significant ways in, in my first year there. Uh, in my first year, average attendance went from 360 to just over 300. Um, so that, that's a pretty considerable sag. I managed to preach lots of folks uh, out of the church. Uh, so let's just be clear about that. Uh, however, in the last nine years uh, that, that I've had the opportunity to participate, uh, things have really turned around. And our average attendance in our last full ministry year, so um, we do our ministry years from June 1st to May 31st. And as much as possible, I'm going to try and use just actual facts and statistics from our annual reports and I also want to just pause and say, I, I sent this presentation to our board executive to make sure that everything in it was board approved and that I wasn't exaggerating because you know the worst way to get numbers is to ask a pastor. But, um, so our, our attendance over the last nine years, has, or basically the last eight years, has, has doubled. Our, our attendance in the last ministry year was 600 people on the nose. Uh, so it doubled over an eight-year stretch. And our annual operating budget has increased by 350% over that same eight-year period. Now, of course, numbers aren't everything, but numbers are one way, just one way, of gauging enthusiasm and investment in the ministry, numbers of participation and and the amount of enthusiasm being generated. Now, obviously, anytime you hear about numbers, you have to probe a little deeper, because a lot of what masquerades as growth in the Christian world is really just sheep stealing. You know, and if you put on a better light show, and if you have better cookies, uh, in the welcome area, and if you have nicer carpets and slides in the children's ministry area, you it's amazing how fast you can grow, but really all you're doing is emptying other less well-resourced evangelical churches in your neighborhood, right? So let, digging a little deeper, uh, we've had 210 people baptized in the last seven and a half years, and the majority of those have actually been adults. So this past summer, we had over 30 people baptized, and, and I, I asked our office administrator to print out all the names for me while I was preparing this. And the, the overwhelming majority of those are, are adults, meaning they're not— and there's nothing—I rejoice every time we baptize an 8-year-old. Um, but there's something remarkable about 35 and 45 and 55-year-old people converting to Jesus Christ. And for whatever reason, God has blessed us with a lot of those folks. And so a large percentage of our growth—not all of it, certainly— but a large percent of that growth has been conversion growth. So God has, has blessed us in some extraordinary and, and an entirely unexpected ways. And uh, what I want to try and do is see if there are some principles that we can pull out from that that would be useful to folks uh, doing the same thing or seeking the same thing in smaller communities. But before we do that, I want to speak about some things that I think are common to all renewal and revitalization ministries, regardless of whether they're in smaller communities or larger communities. There is a lot more that I think is common to all renewal and revitalization ministries than is specific to the type of community. We have to be careful not to over-exaggerate the uniqueness of our particular context. Well, I operate within an ethnic context in the city. Oh. And I operate within a largely, you know, homogenous ethnic suburban reality. Oh. The gospel is still the gospel. God is still who God is. People are still sinners. Jesus still saves. So settle down, right? Like most of of what matters is the same across the board. Now, so let's talk first about what's the same, and then we'll get into, you know, that maybe 20% that is unique to smaller communities. So in in terms of what I I think was true in our story as we reflect back on it, and I think you'd find in any legitimate renewal or revitalization story, is, number one, an emphasis on Bible preaching. Uh, you know, I, I think it would be fair to say there's no such thing as a revival or a revitalization or a renewal that doesn't involve people getting humble before the Word of God. Uh, with, without Bible preaching, I, I just don't think whatever you think you have is real, true, spiritual renewal. When I first came to the church uh, where I'm ministering now, I, I remember being told that the pastor generally preaches for 25 to 30 minutes. And I thought, okay, well, I'll start at 35 minutes, and I'll keep adding five minutes every six months to a year until they fire me. And, uh, and they never did. Instead, our people developed, uh, and that doesn't mean we've, we're now up to 80 minutes. I, I finally stopped at 45. But um, you, our people developed a, a real taste for Bible preaching, I remember when I first came uh, to First Baptist Church in Aurelia, an older man who's still in our church, he's in his late 80s now, and uh, he, he had been a, a real pillar of the church. I think he'd been the treasurer and maybe the chairman of the board at one point. He was a real involved guy. He came to me and he said, people are not going to sit for your long sermons, and, and you're setting the bar way too high. You know, you're talking about things regular people don't understand or care about. You need to be more pithy. And you need to be more practical. That was his advice, and and I didn't take it. in 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 my mind, I mean, maybe I I'm not advocating for this, but in my mind, I thought, you know what, I don't want to do chicken soup for the soul for a career. You know, like I just I can't give my life to that. You know, five ways to be happy in marriage, six ways to be blessed of the Lord in your finances. Shoot me in the eye, like I can't do that kind of stuff. And and I just thought I'm going to preach the Bible from cover to cover, and then if if people will not take it, and they fire me, let's just go make a lot of money, eat, drink, and be merry, and then die, because if this isn't true, if the Bible doesn't work, God help us all, it's over anyway, move on, and I just I had no appetite for chicken soup for the soul, so I just thought, I'm going to rip it, and if everyone leaves, then I'll know this isn't true, and I can quit, and go make money, and it'll be wonderful in the end, and we'll die, but you know, the funny thing is, people got hungry for it, and people started really eating it up. And what was really cool is about a year ago, this same older gentleman, same guy, came to me, and and he said he had never grown so much so fast in all his life in the church. And then about a month ago, when I was visiting him in the hospital, he had a heart, uh, heart failure. Anyway, I'm not a doctor, but uh, it wasn't a heart attack, but a thing with his heart. I'm visiting him in the hospital, and he's got all my little Bible blogs. I, I write regular blogs on um, our daily Bible readings. He's got them all printed out, and he's having his daughter read them to him. These are long. Like, sometimes I don't read them. And, uh, and, but he is having her read them, and they're studying it. And, and so I visited him, and he said, Pastor, I want to tell you, when you first came to our church, I didn't like you. And I, I didn't say this, but I knew that very well. And he said, I didn't like you, and I didn't think you would last. But he said, but I want you to know you won me over, and and I love the ministry of the Word. And and so anyway, I just offer that as an encouragement, and also maybe as a bit of a caution, too. I would say, if you go to a church that's been raised on chicken soup for the soul, maybe don't next Sunday preach 45 minutes on two verses from Leviticus, but... um. At, at least begin slowly but surely moving people in that direction. And if, if the Word of God doesn't do the work of God, then it's not true, and you should do something else for a living. But it will, and it, it, it will win people over. Anyway, second thing I think is common to all renewal movements is fervent prayer. Um, I'm, I have planned to tell a story but one of the people in this story, unbeknownst to me, is in the room. So if you don't, Jake, I'm gonna, is that okay? I didn't know you were going to be here. I'm going to tell a story, and I suppose if it's not true, you can ask Jacob. But a number of years ago, there was a young lady in our church who collapsed into a coma quite unexpectedly. She was in wonderful health. She was a student. She was working. Her family was a core family in our church. Her father had been on the board. Um, And so it took our church, it hit our church hard. Why is this happening? Why do bad things happen? Good, All those things, right? Her father um, started a prayer initiative where he invited people to meet with him at different hours of the day and march around the church. We were praying. I remember going down and and praying and laying hands on her while she was covered in a little um, uh, electrical blanket to keep her body temperature low. And And there was constant round-the-clock prayer at our church. And our church just galvanized. We just were not prepared to let this girl go. And I'm sorry about that. But anyway, it was just a thing. It was a Spirit of God thing. And it was just amazing. I'd never seen a church really just say, we're not, this is not going to happen. And we just stood in the gap and prayed. And it was really neat. Anyway, long story short, baffling the doctors she woke up from her coma married this man sitting right there had a baby who turned 2 a week ago and is is doing great and i'm i'm not uh smart enough to sit here and and say well this is because of that and and we're not certainly claiming credit for that i'm just saying through that episode our church figured out that they could pray before that we had one weekly prayer group with 15 people in it uh, now we have over 10 prayer groups with over 100 people in them every week. And it all started then. And uh, that, I think, is always a part of, of biblical renewal. Well, one, I would like to say one thing about that, too. One of our prayer groups that we started in that period was an, a prayer group for our elders. And uh, like most elders groups, we met once a month and uh, did our meetings. But then I thought, what about the other three we meet on Mondays. What about the other three Mondays of the month? Could we meet in my office to pray? And I just left it open. It's not obli- It's not obligatory. Anybody would like to. We regularly get 100% or close to 100% of our elders uh, out to pray. It's big enough now that it doesn't fit in my office. And uh, and we pray every, every Monday night. So that's a really neat thing. Third thing that I think is common to all renewal movements is loving fellowship. Uh, you probably don't need me to say too much of this, and I want to make sure to leave room at the end for questions, but let me just say this. Fellowship is mission. So often we look at fellowship as almost selfish, like, no, that's just something we do for us. We need to care about the lost. Listen, the lost don't want to join an unhealthy church. And 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 also, the lost are not compelled by unhealthy church. We, we give credibility to our message by having quality commun- community at our church. And you don't have to be a Bible scholar to notice the connection between community and Evangelism in the Bible. All you have to do is read the Bible. In Acts chapter 2, for example, it talks about how all were together. They were meeting day by day. They were sharing. It was wonderful. And then, of course, how does that end? It says, The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Um, The church is supposed to be a compelling community, it's supposed to look better and near. Um, And and so, fellowship is mission. Fourth thing, uh, again, I won't say too much about this. I'm, I'm sure everybody in this room agrees. You need to have gospel-focused, need-meeting evangelism. And the order in that sentence is really important. Gospel-focused, need-meeting evangelism. Uh, Gospel has to be priority, right? Hot soup does not a soul save. Now, that's not to say that hot soup is bad. It's to say that hot soup is ultimately inadequate. What makes hot soup missional in any respect is if it draws people near To to hear the gospel. And, And and so on the one hand, I think we need to be very wary of you know doing deeds of mercy that aren't connected in an obvious and immediate way to the gospel. But then on the other hand, let me say something on the other side of that, which is to say that drowning people don't read tracts. Right? And so there there is a need sometimes for the church to get involved in the immediate in order to speak about the ultimate. And so putting that together, I would just say that gospel-focused, need-meeting evangelism is always going to be absolutely critical to churches interested in renewal. Again, let me just tell you a quick story with respect to our church. We just, you know, this, this isn't rocket science at all. We we hired somebody, actually. We could have done it ourselves, but we ha- we happened to have somebody in our congregation who had done this before. So we hired them to do a community assessment. We had them go around and speak to all the community service providers, churches and government to find out what was being offered in in our city, in the city of Aurelia. It's a city of about 30,000 people, so it's not really a city. Um, And uh, we went around and had them talking to everybody, and what are we offering, what's available? And then we asked, what are the gaps? I mean, because the last thing you want to do is be offering a program that the church down the street is offering. That's not super helpful or efficient. So we said, "What's, what's nobody doing? And we were told that there is a fair bit of crisis care for women in Aurelia, but there is, there is no ongoing mentoring or re-education uh, for single parents, or for teenage moms, we were told specifically. Aurelia has an extraordinarily high percentage of teenage mothers. It's like a multi-generational issue in Aurelia. And there's crisis care, but nothing in terms of re-education. So we thought, okay, well, that's something we can do. So we created something called Family Circle. It has a very simple mission, providing the benefits of extended family to those who don't have it. So we invite these single moms in. There's usually a breakfast or something. The kids go off, and there's something fun for the kids. Moms stay, and there's some kind of workshop. Uh, My mother has has taught um, a cooking class how to make a meal out of leftovers, You know, stuff you think is not interesting, but these women are interested in that because they're trying to stretch a a budget. Then we will always have some sort of gospel presentation and then an invitation to go to the next level. And the next level is we have weekly groups, that meet. Like we have one group called Return. And the, the group is run by a, count, a Christian counselor that we contract with who is specialized in working with folks who struggle with addictions and mental health issues and all that. And it is specifically about how to turn from sin and towards God. And And every time we do the big gathering family circle, we bring in another handful of women who want to join Return, the weekly stuff. So there's a gathering and there's an ongoing. It's need meeting you know, we offer real practical things. One time we just hired a couple of hairdressers to come in and cut all the kids' hair while mom and dad were having, or mom was having a skill thing. Saves mom 15 bucks, right? And uh, super useful. So we we do all that that kind of stuff, and uh, it's not rocket science. You find a gap and you gospel the gap, right? And, and so that's that's what we were doing. Now, all of that, I think, as I said, is specific to probably any renewal movement, regardless of your community, regardless of... Uh, whether you're multi-ethnic or homogenous or urban or suburban. Here's some things that I think are specific to smaller communities. So here's some, some counsel that, you know, we, I, I took counsel with my elders, and, and here's some things we'd want to share with you. We want to say, number one, take the time to conduct a spiritual assessment of your church. Um, I think one of the best things that we did providentially was back in June of 2006, um, we had our first ever elders retreat. And the first thing we did, before we start planning, and what's your vision, and what are you dreaming for our church? And instead of me just coming in as the city slicker who had just finished two pastors in the GTA, coming up to this small community in Aurelia and telling them all my brilliant plans that I might not stick around to execute, right, instead of doing that, which is what typical, typically we would do as young pastors, we said, well, let's talk about what God has already made us passionate about. Right Ephesians 2:10 says we are what he has made us to do or we are what he has made us created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance to be our way of life meaning God made us with mission in mind with our particular mission in mind so sometimes the best way to figure out what God wants you to do is actually to look inside at who God's made you to be and and so we did a value audit and what I did is I just I went to every website of every church I could find and I I copied and pasted their core values. And I, I, so I think I accumulated, I don't know, maybe 40 or 50 core values from different churches. I put them all on pieces of paper. So each piece of paper had one core value. And then in a room like this, I just taped them all up around the walls. And so I asked them to go around and read every core value in the room. And I gave each of the elders in our church eight stickers. And I said, you, you only get eight stickers. You don't get 40 stickers. So you might like every core value in the room, but you get eight. And I said, I want you to put your sticker on the eight values that you think most resonate with who we are as a church. Now, these are value statements, not theological statements, like, we really like the Trinity. Okay, uh, okay, but that's theology. We're talking values, like, we deeply believe in what? Like, what do we think really matters? And and I put those statements up around the room, and, and 99% of those stickers ended up on the same eight core values, meaning there were one or two or three or four that ended up here, there, and everywhere. But the vast majority of those stickers ended up on the same eight core values. We adopted those as our core values that day, and we began planning immediately in that trajectory. Here's why I think that's important. People already have an inborn, natural, connotative drive, right? They're already inclined towards a certain type of ministry. But if you come in as Johnny Pastor Pants, and you're super excited over here, it takes an awful lot of energy to wrestle those people into your passion stream. Why not, unless they're passionate about things that are wrong, like we're passionate about excluding people from every race and creed and color from the kingdom of God. Okay, that's not a helpful vision. Uh, but so unless their vision is wrong, why not work with it, at least initially? And so we started making all our plans in the direction of existing passions, and it it got super easy. So to go back to Family Circle, for example, one of the things we, we figured out is that our people have a passion for connecting the 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 power of the gospel to people who are hurting and experiencing generational brokenness. That's like that's in there. They 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 look at their town. They see all of this, and they and they have been blessed by God. They have been helped, and they're like, I wish I could take what God has done for me and share it with that third generation single mom who's making the same mistakes her grandmother made that put her there. So everyone's already passionate about that. So we develop a program in the line of that passion. We ask for volunteers. Our first family circle event, we had more volunteers than single moms. We had 70 volunteers. I think we had 40 women show up. They were very loved, right? It was the easiest recruit in the history of ministry because we planned in the direction of existing passions. So I say do a bit of a spiritual audit on your church. And in that, let me say one other thing in terms of a spiritual audit. One of the other things that we did, and it was—it sounds super boring, um, but actually, I didn't have this originally in my presentation. But one of the elders that I sent this to wrote me back and said, "You got to put this in." Back around, I think, 2007, uh, we there was—I want to say this super carefully. There was another church across the road that was starting to die, and they were having troubles, and they'd had a long history of troubles, and 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 we were. Sad about that, but not sure how to get involved. I dug into the history and found out that this church actually had come out of a bad congregational meeting in our church in in 1930. We still have the, I mean, we still have the minutes of the meeting. And it was in our denomination, and I can't remember now if it was 1930 or 1929, there were a couple meetings, but uh, there was the, an argument over the word inerrancy. And because if you remember, if you know your church history, you know that that uh, there was a, a, a challenge against biblical authority, and the church, to protect itself from that challenge, came up with a new word called iner- inerrancy. Our church had been founded with the 1689 Baptist Confession that doesn't have the word inerrancy in it. It has infallibility in it. And so there was a meeting, and they said, we've got to put this word in. And, and we were like, well, how is this word different than infallibility? And And they explained it. Nobody understood how the words were different. Um, and, but they said, we'll put it in if that matters to you, but then they didn't feel like we were sincere. So this group of, you know, 80 people left and started this church that now was across the road from us. And I just thought that's a weird way for a church to start. And interestingly, the word inerrancy has been in our doctrinal statements since that meeting. So it was also unnecessary. And so you think maybe, is there any, obviously we can't go back and redo history, but here's this church. It looks kind of to me like born in blood and has never been able really to get over that. Plus, it's a horrible witness to the community. Like, I get asked all the time, why is there a Baptist church across the road from you? Do you really want the whole answer, you know, 1930, bad meeting? Uh, right, like it's... And so we thought, is there any way we could own that? And so we literally wrote up a letter of repentance saying... Now, it was just 90 years ago. Like, nobody's alive. Uh, one lady in our church had a grandparent who was at the meeting. That, that literally was it. So we had people saying, why do we have to apologize for something that nobody, let's just do it. So we wrote up this thing saying, we did not listen very well in 1930, and we regret that we compromised your plant and and that we forced you to be born in blood. We should have sent you out with your unique passions and your unique calling. We should have resourced you and celebrated you. We are to blame. We're sorry. And I read that letter in a service across the road. Now, And the people were crying, and it was very emotional. Interestingly, it didn't help them. They ended up closing anyway about 18 months later. But it, for whatever reason, opened the floodgates on us, and, and God blessed us. And a lot of people trace you know, our revival or renewal or whatever you want to call it from that time. All that is to say, do some spiritual assessment on your church. Find out what they're passionate about. Find out if there's anything they need to repent for. Uh, number two, communicate frequently with older congregants. Uh, I, I realize that in in the city, it might be possible to have a church that is targeted at a specific demographic. You know, I actually, one of my first pastorates was in the GTA, and we unashamedly said we're a church for baby boomers and their children. Um, let me say first of all i don't think you should say that kind of stuff and let me say i don't think god intends for there to be demographically targeted churches but then let me also say in smaller communities you simply don't have the option of being that wrong if i could say it that way um you you have to get there together you 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 can't alienate an entire entire demographic in your church you just can't do it And, and so one of the Things that There was a a significant need. One one of the things I immediately observed when I came into our church is that our church had an unhealthy divide between young and old. We had two services. It turns out that the church was going to split uh, about six or seven years previous because the old people didn't like the young people's music and the young people thought the older people were stodgy. And uh, and so they were going to split, and they decided a compromise would be to go to two services. So they had an early service, a 930 service for the young people, and then they had an 11 o'clock service um, for the older folks. And as you can imagine, the older service, the traditional service, was tanking. It was dying by attrition. It got smaller every time somebody died, and there was nobody new coming in. The younger service was growing. So there were, there were Sundays where 80% of the attendance was in the 930 service, which is not healthy. They had no connection with each other. People didn't know each other. So immediately, that to me looked like a huge barrier to health and growth, and we began moving towards bringing these two groups together. Now, obviously, there was a lot of panic around that. Don't you know, you whippersnapper, that we just about split six or seven years ago over this stuff? And, I, and I, well, So let's go slow. Let's talk. So we had lots of conversations about what's worship really all about and just how ordained our organs. And, um, you know, because actually there was a time in our church where we almost split about bringing the organ in. And so is that really God's thing? And what is this all about? And young people, why are you so impatient and mean and and uh, having all and so we had some of these conversations and there was lots of back and forth and one of the other things we did is we surveyed because there was all this rumor floating around the church that if we ever put the services back together all of the old people would leave and take their money with them so there was lots of panic so we started surveying we created a congregational survey we gave it to everybody we had folks help the seniors fill it out if they weren't uh, able to see it or or read it or or whatever. We had lots of helpers. And and we asked very specific questions, like how important is your music preference to you? Um, you know, how many contemporary music songs could you listen to in a service before you killed someone? Um, right? And all, I mean, we asked lots of questions. We had very practical questions, like what do you think an appropriate ratio is? Um, you know, and we would put options, like, Four contemporary songs, one traditional, three contemporary songs, two traditional. We, we put all that, and literally we were able to gauge exactly where our people were. And then what we did is we developed a time frame. The time frame was going to be three years. We're going to make this change over three years. And that's what we had decided at over the board. We communicated that to the people, and we're like, here's what we're going to do to get you ready. We're going to introduce one contemporary song to the traditional service every Sunday. We're going to bring in a traditional song to the contemporary. And so we're going to get you to realize this is is not going to, like, ruin the spirit. It's all good. So we started doing that. That's the trajectory we were on. Everyone was happy because they felt listened to. But then here's what happened. So on the one hand, I'm saying two things at once here. I'm saying communicate frequently with older congregants. I'm saying have a plan that suggests incremental change. But then here's the other thing I'm saying. Be prepared for a move of the spirit. Here's what happened an older gentleman in our church who's, who's still alive and still in our church, but he's, at, he's over 90 now, so he's a, but he's an old-timer, carried a lot of weight. He came to us, and he said, I had an experience. I said, what happened? He said, I was at the bank, and I was in line with a young man, and I heard him talking, and I perceived he might be a Christian. So I started talking to him, and we had a very wonderful conversation. And I asked him, are you a Christian? And he said, yes. I said, where do you go to church? He said, I go to First Baptist Church, Aurelia. He says, well, I go to First Baptist Church, really. I've been going to First Baptist Church, really, since the 40s. And he said, oh, I've never met you. Yeah. And he, he came to us, this older gentleman, and he, and he said, I realized right then and there, we've done wrong. And, and he said, I want you to know, make the change, make it now, and I've got your back. And right then and there, as an elders group, we decided to shrink our timeline for this change from three years to six months. And, and we made it in six months. And we lost 20 people on the day. We, I had people shaking my hand on the Sunday we put the services, the last Sunday of the two divided services, shake my hand and say, thank you, Pastor. God bless you. Nothing personal, but we're going, and I'll fill in the blank. Uh, we're going to such and such church because we, we love the organ and can't stand this, this music. But God bless you. Nobody left angry, and the vast majority of people stayed. Within six months, the fresh winds of revival began to blow through our church. And So anyway, all, all that is to say, I offer that as, as a couple thoughts altogether. Communicate frequently with older congregants. I do believe God blesses patience and honoring patience towards senior members. We, we have folks in our church who sit beside the window donated by their great-grandparents okay? That's a real thing. So you can't just start smashing stuff for your new idea you're passionate about for the next 11 days, right? Like, you, you, there needs to be a sense of pace. There needs to be communication. There needs to be honoring patience. But then just watch and, and believe that the Spirit might move, because we've seen that too. Fourth thing I want to say is be clear and cautious when establishing ministry partnerships, If if you're a handout uh, person and you're worried I didn't say everything there, uh, the number two is communicate frequently with older congregants. Number three, be patient and incremental when making change, but keep an eye open for exceptional moves of the Spirit. Here's number four, be clear and cautious when establishing ministry partnerships. Uh, Here's what I mean by that. In a large community, partnering is very easy. So, for example, in Toronto, uh, my friend Paul Martin leads a um, a community or a little subgroup, a network for conservative, smaller, reformed, evangelical, Baptistic churches. Wow, that's a specific cluster. But in Toronto, you can get 25 people to a meeting uh, where that's who you are. Okay, you can't do that in Aurelia. Uh, In in our community, I felt the pressure when I first got there to partner with everybody. And uh, that was a mistake on my part. Uh, We became known in my early years there as the church as the engine of church unity in Aurelia. We gave over $100,000 to, to churches of all kinds of denominations and stripes in, in our community. We were the giveaway money and cheer for you church. And everybody loved it. We also hosted a, a Good Friday service where we invited, you know, everyone, come on out, we'll do this together. And near the end, we had over 800 people jammed into into our we had people sitting on the stage behind us it was crazy and we started including all these other churches but we very quickly in the space of one month went from being the engine of church unity in aurelia to the enemy of church unity in aurelia we made a huge mistake Uh, we we included too many people and we gave up too much control of this good friday service which was a good friday communion service and uh, we started rotating obviously if you're going to include people you have to let them lead and so I started uh, rotating the leadership of the service and we rotated the leadership of the service to a fella who's a good guy but he's he's not us and um, when I finally got a copy of the service order a week before the service was to take place there were a number of things that were supposed to happen that I knew our elders would not, our church would not be comfortable with. I had a pastor on my staff tell me flat out he was not going to attend the service and so we realized oh dear Um, and so with just a couple days before the service, we had to pull the plug on it, and we moved it to another church in town. But of course, by that time, you can't get the information out. So we had people coming into the service, and we said, after the first song, we basically said, just so you know, this is no longer the Aurelia area Good Friday service. This is just First Baptist Church. If you're looking for the Aurelia area Good Friday service, it's at that church over there, and we're going to sing a song now while you walk out of this church hating our guts. Uh, I didn't say that last bit, but that's basically what happened. And it was a disaster. And uh, we've been six years mopping that up. But the bottom line, here's what I learned. In in the evangelical world, everybody says they love Jesus. But that doesn't mean all that you think it means. And we do church really different. And we do communion. Like the, the closer you get to the center of who we are, the more careful you need to be to make sure we actually are believing and saying the same things and we were just catastrophically naive, and it cost us. Um, So my caution back to you is to think very clearly, prayerfully, and carefully about with whom and towards what you will partner. We've thought a lot about that, and so we actually ended up writing a very particular and specific document. It's a guideline for church partnerships. It's included in your package as an appendix. It's offered. Only as a guide to our thinking and our process. If it's useful to you, great. If it's not, stick it in your birdcage. Um, but, but there it is. That's sort of the product of, of our thought. Fifth and last, I think it's the last one. It is. No, it's not. This is going to be quick, though. Invest in leadership development. One of the things we also discovered is because we're doing something that isn't super sexy right now within our little slice of the world, right? We're doing renewal in smaller communities, not church planting in Toronto, we found it hard to attract high quality staff you know i would have thought that with hundreds of people coming to christ and exciting things and a budget that over triples it would be easy to recruit young pastors it turned out not to be they all want to work in church plants in the city and 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 so that was tricky it it there, we've had positions in our church that took us almost 2 years to fill and uh, so one, all that is to say, that's just one of the reasons. It's not the only reason we have really put a premium on in-house leadership development. So we have an in-house leadership development for men called the Barnabas Group. It has it's a forty-week process over two years. This past year, we had over thirty men involved in the process. It is an incredibly practical. Uh, we teach biblical theology. We teach. Uh, What is the gospel? We teach how to do evangelism, how to do teaching, how to do preaching. I brought in some of my real live unsaved friends uh, from the YMCA. And I told my friends, I was like, they all know who I am. I've talked to them about Jesus before. None of them punched me. That was the criteria. I had to have had a previous conversation with them about Jesus in which there was no swearing or violence. And uh, and so I brought in some of my real live pagan friends. And I said to these young men in our church, I'm going to sit you at a table. You need to tell them about Jesus. And uh, actually, Levi was one of the guys who participated in that program, shared Jesus. Who was your guy? Was it John Weber? Yeah. It was John Weber. Uh, with my neighbor. You know, John Weber's my neighbor. And, uh, you know, we would talk, putting the garbage cans out, we'd talk about Jesus. He never hit me. So uh, he came over, and uh, Levi told him about Jesus. And, and so we did all that. Then we have a, a women's program called T2 from Titus 2. Uh, I teach that as well. And uh, we have uh, 17 women in that this year. And they are learning a lot of the same stuff. It's about two-thirds the same as B2. Uh, There's an emphasis on uh, some specific stuff specific to women. But again, it's about learning the Bible, being careful how to communicate that with other people, the gospel, etc. We're bringing in real-life people, and they're doing their thing, and it's awesome. Uh, So we've made a heavy commitment to leadership development. We just hired um, this year... Uh, an in-house product. It's very cool. What we've discovered is that the people who are most excited about our ministry are the people who've got saved and developed under our ministry, right? To somebody looking at resumes on the internet from Toronto, why in the world would I want to go to Aurelia, right? But to somebody who came to Christ in our youth ministry and was discipled and went through our Barnabas program and our internship program. We scholarshiped him out to Bible school. Now he's back. We hired him. His name's Ryan Chevalier. He's here at the conference. He's extraordinarily tall. You probably already saw him. Uh, that's a success thing for our church. Our church is just so excited about him. And, and we've just figured out we need to do that. Um, it's not easy to hire if you're not doing what's super sexy. And, uh, so in-house development is, is really important. Levi is another of our in-house products, not as in-house as Ryan. He didn't come to faith, which is not his fault. He, uh, he was led to the Lord early by his parents. Way to go, mom and dad. Um, but, uh, he has gone through Barnabas. Uh, we've scholarshiped with him. He's internshipped with us and uh, now he's on staff as well. So we get excited about hiring folks in-house. And uh, I would say if you're doing renewal work in smaller communities, you need to be excited about that too. Lastly, I would say, specific to smaller communities, if you care about renewal and revival, you probably need to commit to longer-term pastorates. According to Tom Rainer, I'm sure you've heard this before, pastoral tenure right now is between three and four years. Um, now, that may be long enough to upgrade your resume, but it's not long enough to contribute to a renewal and a revitalization work in a church. When I, uh, when I got to my church, I definitely had the sense that some people were waiting me out They're like, okay, Yahoo, with all your fancy ideas, uh, you know, you just say whatever you want, and uh, we were here before you got here, we'll be here when you leave, and uh, we'll pick up where we left off. At around the five-year mark, they sort of figured out, this guy may not be leaving. And so we either need to get on board or we need to go, and some some did both. We had people do both. But also around the five-year mark, I began to notice a discernible change in the way I related to people and the way they related to me. There, there is all of a sudden this dad at large thing that happens around the five year mark, um, where you get. I remember a lady called me up and her son had gone for a bike ride. He was supposed to be home for dinner. It's eight o'clock. It's dark. Her husband's away on a business trip. Can you come over and find my son? I'm thinking that's not a question I would have got. I don't think in my first year at the church, right? Like, but now I'm just I'm dad at large, and I have an authority that comes from being part of the family. And, and that authority is because I sat with you when your daughter died. And I was the first one to greet you on your driveway when your son died in a car accident. And I held your hand and we wept together when your mother passed. And that's a so that's a whole different thing. That's not listen to me because I've got degrees on the wall. You know, that's speaking from inside the family. And, and that kind of authority is not granted cheaply, and it's rarely experienced in your first couple of years in ministry in a church. And you need that kind of authority to, to make difficult decisions and difficult changes in a church. So if, if you really care about this, you're going to need to make a commitment to longer-term pastoral tenure. Now, again, that's the end. I hope you don't hear that as a recipe or as a blueprint. Um, I hope, hope you hear that as maybe containing something of, of how God has done extraordinary things through ordinary means. We have about uh, eight or nine minutes left, and I'd love to open it up to questions. I'll probably repeat your question into the microphone for those who are, who are listening on uh, the tape. Yep. Uh, for this Barnabas group and T2, yes. other things you do? Do you develop those programs yourself, or do you yeah. find Yeah, good question. Uh, it's, it's sort of a combination. So the question was, uh, for the Barnabas curriculum and for the T2 curriculum, did we develop that in-house, or did we borrow it? Uh, Yes and no. Uh, James Lawrence wrote some curriculum that we used in the first iteration of the Barnabas Group. Um, I forget the name of his organization, or I'd give it to you, Uh, but you could probably type in James Lawrence Christian Mentoring or something, and it would pop up. We used that for, I think, two years, and then there were some good things about it and some things I wanted to do differently, and then after that, I I wrote my own. Uh, So having come through that experience. Uh, we blew it up. We made it a lot bigger. His, I think, is eight or twelve weeks. We do forty. Um, some of his stuff is still in ours. You could probably read through it and spot a few places where it, you can still see that. But we we wrote our own stuff. And and for T two, as I said, two thirds of that is is from our Barnabas stuff, and then the first third of it, which is specific to sort of the women and leadership piece, uh, I wrote. That's in house, as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Go to school and then don't want to come back. Yes. Do you, do you find that you want to or sometimes they marry boys they met at school and don't come back. Yeah. So that can happen, and it's really sad. Sorry, go, go ahead. Do you find that there's a pressure to stay on body that, or do you feel like there's a part of the calling to say, Yeah. Well, that, that's a good question. We're on both sides of that. So on the because we have a, a college campus in our town, Georgian College has a campus, and Lakehead has a campus. So we get both of that. Like uh, Levi runs our young adult group, and we, we have, like Matt and Tina Cotton, for example, I don't know if you'd know them, but that's a couple that came up here, I think, to Georgian College, and they started going to our young adult group. They started attending the church service. They actually decided to look for jobs in Aurelia. They're from Peterborough, aren't they? Yeah, somewhere. Uh, and they decided they wanted to find jobs in Aurelia so they could stay at our church. So we pick up young people. We've had a, a bunch. Uh, we could probably name five or six or seven. Eliah Menzies, and we'd go down the list, the Bouquet Girls. Um, so there's a bunch that have made Aurelia their home because they want to go to our church, but they came here for college. Then on the other hand, we lose tons the other way where they go away to— uh, college down in Cambridge and meet boys and and move to to horrible places. Um, so you know that that all happens too. And so I I, I just sort of feel like uh, it's a great opportunity actually to bless other churches too because our our young people tend to be very well discipled. And so if we can release them into other churches, that's mission for us. Uh, and then we'll go ahead and grab the pagan kids who move up to Aruba for school and and uh, evangelize and disciple them and send them somewhere too. So yes. Uh, in terms of to get the message, our message out, yeah. not a ton. Uh, we we do we have a fairly significant web presence. Um, so I we myself and another pastor uh, run a a website that we put a lot of stuff on. It's called uh, adfontes.ca. So www.adfontes.ca. That's um, adfontes is a, a Reformation term. It means back to the sources. And uh, I think this month we've had close to ten thousand page views on there this month, and so we do a fair bit of web presence stuff, and that gives us a chance to communicate. But we don't do a lot through radio and television, like we don't um, book airtime on on the Life One Hundred Point Three or anything like that. We do the odd commercial. Yeah. We're living in a town of seven hundred. Yes. Three, church, uh, three Protestant churches. Yes. Catholic church. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Other than that, they've got got to drive at least an hour for the fine work. Yep. And so it's mainly seniors and a few people on compensation. Yep. And so you're wondering what to do there? That's a, a tough situation. Well, the way I kind of look at it is wherever you find people, you find mission. So if you've got 700 people in your community... Uh, i don 't care how old they are i mean i don 't think the angels dance any less hard for eighty year olds who come to jesus or or for eight year olds I think they 're just excited and and so I think the church um, needs to look at it that way too i think there's a there 's a mission for people who want to do good gospel um, ministry in towns where there are lots of seniors um, because those sorts of towns sometimes become destination towns for seniors, too. Like, uh, there's a community not far from us that's sort of a, a senior's destination town. But anyway, I guess all I would say is, wherever you are, you have mission. And, and the goal, I don't think, is to build churches of 500 or 600 or 700. That's, that's not possible in all communities. I think the goal is to be a place where people are hearing the gospel, so they're, they're, the Word of God is washing over them, the Spirit of God is working in them, and they're coming to Christ. And then people are being sanctified and grown by the gospel. So the word of God, again, Jesus says the same word that saves us in Romans 10. Jesus says in John 17, it also causes us to grow and be sanctified. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So there's a word ministry that's spiritually enlivened that's changing people. Who cares how many um, and who cares how old, I would say? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I will say that um, that wasn't in the in this thing, but looking back on it, I, I will say that uh, I think when you, as a pastor, if you go into a, a church, your primary target for pastoral ministry should be your board. Like you should look, you should almost figure out your pie of time and effort and energy, and give a huge slice of your pie, the biggest slice to your board, because if you don't win them you're just splitting the church slowly. Um, and, and so, you know, win your board, uh, teach your board, um, pray with your board, and um, that's, that's got to be number one. Yeah, I would say, I mean, the vast majority of my time, I don't want to say vast majority, an awful lot of my time is spent with board guys. One of the things I started doing when I came to the church is I just started playing squash with two of the board members, uh, so I, you know, I played squash with them every Monday and every Wednesday at seven in the morning. And uh, you build friendships, right? And then you start going out for dinner together and then you start doing this. And and you do that with your board members, work some of that time. And there's another guy I regularly. There's two other guys I regularly have lunch with and we talk. And I took a few of them with me on a conference. Uh, those of you who are at T4G this past year, I took, I think it was two Vans. Was it two Vans of? We, we loaded our board into buses and vans and took them down to T4G. We grow together spiritually. We worship together. We drive together. We play together. And all of a sudden, once you do that, I look around our board table, and all my best friends are sitting there. Okay, that's a conversation that's going to go well. Just maybe show some appreciation. It was great.